Good morning, church. Good to see you all. Good to be with you. Um, I'm excited. It's December 1st. It is the month of Christmas. Favorite holiday. And uh, I'm just super excited about it. Everybody okay? Sort of? Life is hard, huh? But God is good. Amen? Amen. Um, I don't know where to start. Anyway, so it's Advent, okay, Christmas time. And um, this, this year at Reality, as you can tell from the somewhat cheesily colored <laughs> candles, we are going to be celebrating Advent. Advent is a time for us, listen very carefully now, for us to prepare ourselves for Christmas. As consumer-oriented Americans, we don't always do the best job at spiritually preparing ourselves to rightly celebrate Christmas. We do lots of preparations, right? When it comes to wish lists, I was just filling mine out this week for my mom, just a huge (laughs) wish list. And uh, I just got into hunting. I've been hunting a lot, so it's going to be a camo Christmas for me. Just everything camo, the whole Cabela's catalog I just gave to my mom and said, I want one of everything. And so we prepare that way, and we prepare by buying gifts and decorating the home and all those things. But, man, it is so necessary that we prepare our hearts to rightly celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. So Advent is an opportunity for us to do that. So officially on the church calendar, Advent starts um, four Sundays before Christmas. That would be today. And then it ends on Christmas Eve. Now, what does Advent mean? Advent comes from a Latin word that means arrival or appearing or coming or visit. And what's important to realize about Christianity is Christianity has two great advents or two great appearings or visits or comings, right? The first is the coming of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. Remember, born in a manger in Bethlehem. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. The first advent coming, appearing. But there is a second advent within Christianity that is incredibly important. And that's what we eagerly anticipate. Jesus coming again. At his first coming, the kingdom was inaugurated. At his second coming, the kingdom will be consummated and fully fulfilled and realized in our midst. It's an important doctrinal foundational truth of Christianity that just as Christ came, Christ is also coming. And in the Advent season as a church, We don't only prepare ourselves to celebrate the first Advent, Christmas, but we prepare ourselves in anticipating the second Advent, the soon coming of Jesus Christ to rule and reign on earth. So that's what Advent is about. It's about both, first coming and the second coming. And during December, we'll be giving careful attention to both. What we're going to be trying to do as a church is cultivate space in our lives, right? If you talk to anybody during December, like, how are you? Oh, busy. What have you been doing? Oh, everything, (laughs) right? It's just this time of the season when we're rushing around and there's so much to do and the year is coming to a close and all the preparation. So we're going to try to spiritually think this through, biblically think this through and try to real purposefully now intentionally create space for Jesus in the Christmas time. 
It's weird that we would have to say that, but come on, be honest. You know that we have to really try to do that. Create space. And not just on December 25th when we say a prayer before we open presents, but like the whole month preparing ourselves to celebrate the first advent and rightly anticipate the second advent. So that's what we're going to be trying to do. And it's going to revolve around these four themes, these four Sundays, hope, love, joy, and peace. So each Sunday we'll be looking at a different one of those, starting with hope today, realizing that all of these hope, love, joy, and peace are brought to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. And there are different ways that they're brought to us at the first and the second advent. And that's what we're going to be kind of exploring theologically this month is the way that hope, love, joy, and peace are brought to us both when Christ came and as Christ is coming again. Part of what churches sometimes do that we've never done this in our 10-year history of reality is light candles around Advent. We're going to be doing it for the first time. And yes, a couple people are super excited about the candles. What the candles symbolize are those four themes, right? There's four candles, purple, and then one is pink. Pink is the one for joy, so we'll be lighting that on the third week. And then, of course, there's a white one in the middle. What do you think the white one symbolizes? Jesus, right? So we'll be lighting that one on Christmas Eve when we're together, recognizing that Jesus is a fulfillment of everything we could ever think about hope, love, joy, and peace, both in his first coming and his second coming. So that's what we'll be doing today. And then we'll be involving families in the church in this. So each week I'll bring up a different family from the church and one of the kids will read a scripture passage for the day and then they'll light the candle together. So right now I want to bring up the Thule family. Come on up guys. These are the Thules and that's Daddy Matt and Mama Toby and teenager Max, 13 years old, and little Raleigh. Say hi, Raleigh. Say hi. (laughs) And this is Lucy, and Lucy is nine. And Lucy is going to be reading for us our scripture today. So go ahead, sweetheart. You can do it, sweetie. It's okay. I know just how you feel. (laughs) I feel that way every time I'm up here, sweetie. That's okay. How about a round of applause for Lucy? Oh, it's okay, sweetie. I'll read it. I'll read it. Yeah, no worries. I'll read it as part of the thing right now. We'll open up there. I I have a Bible. I brought one with me up here. (laughs) But, no, actually, you know what? You go ahead and read it. I want to hear you read it. And then you light the candle too. It's all on you now, Mom. You want to read it, Rolly? No? Okay. Who else wants to come on stage? (laughs) Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. 
The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, the light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms blood-stained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's angel armies will make this happen. Amen. The word of the Lord. candle for hope. Thank you, family. I don't blame her. It's scary up here. Okay, open your Bibles to Isaiah, chapter 1 or chapter 9, either one. That reading was, of course, from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Let's ask the Lord to help us in this season. Lord, we thank you for your word that we just heard. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Lord, we would ask as a church this Christmas season that that glorious truth would not be lost on us. Lord, we confess that we make Christmas about so many things, me maybe more than anybody. But we, we know what it's really about. And we ask that by work of your Holy Spirit that would become bigger in our hearts and our minds this year. That it would be more about Jesus than ever before. For Christ is the one who has brought us hope. Christ himself is our hope. We thank you that you have allowed us to set apart this time of year to think about that, to celebrate that, and to look forward to the fulfillment of that. So Holy Spirit, help us with that. Help us do that. You know our hearts. We're worried and bothered about so many things and excited about so many things, but none of them compare to Christ who has saved us, who is our hope. So help us focus our hearts and minds on him. Please help me as I teach and preach and help us to hear and respond. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in verse 2, Toby read this. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a land of deep darkness, on them a light will shine. The prophet Isaiah here was speaking to the nation of Israel. At the time, it was a divided kingdom, right? The southern kingdom, Judah, down by Jerusalem, and then the northern kingdom, Israel, above that. 
He was speaking to them about 700 years before Jesus came, but he was speaking to them about Jesus. And what was being relayed to the nation of Israel in this passage was this idea that we're exploring, hope. The prophet Isaiah, in giving them the word of the Lord according to the will of the Lord, was wanting to give them hope because these were dark days in the nation of Israel. These were difficult times for God's people. It was a time of spiritual decay. We go through those seasons in our lives, don't we? You know this. There's days and there's times where we're just on fire for the Lord. There's other times where, for various reasons, who knows, sin and laziness, whatever it is, there's times where our hearts just sort of get a little cold and a little dull. Now, in those seasons where our hearts are cold and dull toward the Lord, what, what inevitably happens? If you're anything like me, it, it seems to open a bigger door to sinful activities in my life. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Those seasons where I'm just on fire for the Lord, really following the Lord closely, really giving careful attention to him, pursuing him, it seems to have a positive effect on my sanctification. You know what I'm talking about? Like when I'm really on fire for the Lord, it just gets a little more difficult to sin in a lot of ways. Not that we don't, we still do until Christ comes again, but it just a little more difficult. But in those times where I haven't been giving careful attention to my spiritual life, not really pursuing the Lord, not growing in the Lord, not on fire the way that I know the Spirit would have me be, it just seems easier to fall into some of those sins. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Well, Israel knew that same experience. This was a time of sort of spiritual decay for Israel. They were going through the motions for sure, as we'll read in a moment, but there was no real fire in their hearts for the Lord. And so because there was spiritual laziness, there entered in moral laziness. Because they weren't giving careful attention to truly following after the Lord with all their hearts, they began to give more attention to the sins and the sinful activities that were available to them. And so there's all sorts of injustices in the land. You read in the chapters of Isaiah surrounding this passage that the courts were passing unjust laws, the courts were passing perverse laws, that they were beginning to call evil good and good evil, and that those who were speaking out against the evil in the land were being persecuted. It was an interesting time. It's an interesting time. Spiritual laxity, moral laxity. And so, injustice, wickedness, and on top of that, the chastening of the Lord would come to Israel in these days. Lest we forget that the Lord is holy. Lest we forget in this age of grace, in this time where we have Christ as our Savior, that God is holy and that God of Israel is holy. And there will come a day of reckoning for all of humanity, the great white throne judgment, where everything will be shown to be as it is, good and evil, and all of humanity will be judged. For those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, who was judged in our place upon the cross, we won't be judged for our sins. Can I hear a thank you, Jesus? 
But if you've rejected the salvation of God in Christ and his work on the cross, then you will have to stand before this holy God for your own sins. And this was a period in history where Israel was standing before God and he was bringing them face to face with their sins and there would be consequences. God would chasten Israel. Isaiah is prophesying of a time very soon when the Assyrians would invade from the northeast and they would come in and capture the northern kingdom in 722 BC. And then years later in 586 BC, the the Babylonians would come in and capture the southern kingdom. And then Israel would go into exile for 70 years. And then God would allow the the Medo-Persian empire to rise up and they would oppress Israel. And then after that, the Grecian empire would rise up and they would oppress Israel. And then the Roman empire would rise up and all the while Israel were suffering under the weight of either being in exile or being under these foreign oppressors much as they were back in the days of Egypt. Forgetting often as we do that God had delivered them from the slavery of Egypt. And yet continually they would wander from the Lord and the Lord would say, why are you heading back toward Egypt? Why do you want to go back under the yoke and slavery and the weight of your own sin? Why not rather obey my word? God is pleading with them in the book of Isaiah. But as they ignored the Lord, the Lord would bring these consequences. And subsequently, these were dark days in Israel. These were, without doubt, days of despair. There's a picture of the weight of these days in the first chapter of Isaiah. Look there, please. Isaiah chapter 1, we get kind of a good picture of their rebellion. And see if you could discern in the text the sadness of the Lord's heart toward it. Starting in verse 2 of Isaiah 1. Listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. God speaking to Israel. Even an ox knows its owner and a donkey recognizes its master care. Its master's care, excuse me. But Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care for them. Oh, what a sinful nation they are, loaded down with a burden of guilt. They're evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. So right there, pause there. We we have a snapshot of the situation. This is just clear rebellion on the part of Israel. And can you hear the heart of their God? You can almost hear in the pages the heart of God breaking. When he says there, the children that I've raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Now, every parent who has a teenager knows this feeling. And and you could hear God. He says, even an ox and a donkey know who cares for them and they respond. But my people aren't responding to my love for them. Just utter rebellion. And then I want us to see the effects of their rebellion, starting in verse 5. Why do you continue to invite punishment? Must you rebel forever? Again, God speaking to Israel. Look at their condition. 
Your head is injured and your heart is sick. You're battered from head to foot, covered with bruises, welts, and infected wounds. He's talking about their spiritual condition in the midst of their rebellion. Without any soothing ointments or bandages. And your country lies in ruin. And your towns are burned. It wasn't only affecting their spiritual well-being. It was affecting the prosperity of the whole nation. The well-being of a whole nation. It goes on and says, Foreigners plunder your fields before your eyes and destroy everything they see. Beautiful Jerusalem stands abandoned like a watchman's shelter in a vineyard, like a lean-to in a cucumber field after the harvest, like a helpless city under siege. Then he says, If the Lord's, the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of us, we would have been wiped out like Sodom and destroyed like Gomorrah. Maybe you know how Israel must have felt here. Maybe you've been confronted with your sin at a time where where you've seen in, in a moment of clarity the weight of it, the horror of it, that inner bruising. He said, you're battered from head to toe by your sin. I I know, I know what this feels like. I know what this looks like. And you know what we think? We think this sin happens in a vacuum, don't we? We often say this, well, I'm not hurting anybody else by doing this. Nobody else knows about this. Nobody sees what I'm looking at. Nobody knows what I'm consuming. Nobody knows these thoughts or nobody was there when that happened. But what the whole of scripture tells us and what this passage makes plain is that sin never happens in a vacuum. The whole nation was affected. God had ordained for Israel something called shalom, peace, which spoke not only of inner peace and peace with the lands around them, but the prosperity of the whole, of all the people. And what was happening in the midst of their sin is that shalom was gone from their midst now. There wasn't any peace within. They're all torn up on the inside. There wasn't peace from without. Their enemies were besieging them and there wasn't prosperity in the land. It had gone waste. These were the effects of sin during this time in Israel. These were dark days. Now, we're going to see in the next few verses that they were still going through all the religious rigmarole. They still showed up to church on every Sunday, so to speak. They sat there and they heard the sermons. They had their Bibles. They went to the events. They took communion, so to speak. They did the stuff. But I I want you to see how God felt about the stuff when it was just lip service. Verse 10. Listen to the Lord, you leaders of Sodom. Gosh, can you imagine what an insult that was to say that to the leaders of Israel? Listen to the law of our God, people of Gomorrah. What makes you think, this is God speaking to them, what makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of the fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, Who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebration of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, fasting, they are all sinful and false. I don't want any more of your pious meetings. 
I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. If you only obey me, you'll have plenty to eat. But if you turn away and refuse to listen, you will be devoured by the sword of your enemies. I, the Lord, have spoken. That's heavy. These were dark, dark days in Israel. Let us not forget that the God of Israel, our God, is a holy God. These were dark days in Israel. They were going through the motions. They were offering the sacrifices. They were going to the festivals. They were observing the days. They were even fasting. And God said, I I don't want anything to do with it. I'm not after your ceremony. I'm after your heart. He had said earlier in the passage, you are my children. He wanted to be a father to them. Israel was his beloved, his special possession that he delivered with a mighty right hand out of slavery that he called after his own name. A people among which he would place his name for his own glory. He would do great deeds on their behalf that the whole world might know that the God of Israel is great. And they drifted from him. Does anybody know anything about the slow drift? It's not as though Israel woke up one morning and said, you know what, we're going to rebel against God today. We're just done with this whole thing. We're going to still go through the motions. We're going to show up. We're going to go to church. We're going to do all the things. But we're really just going to be ignoring God. But that doesn't happen overnight, does it? Some people are like that. They're just playing games from day one. You're fooling everybody but God. But for most of us, it's a slow drift. For Israel, this had been a slow drift of rebellion, of not giving careful attention to the Lord. And, and there, there came a moment where God said, I'm done with it. It's time for you to get right. Now, I want you to notice the, the pivotal part of the passage where in verse 18, he says, all right, come now, let's settle this. Though your sins are like scarlet, meaning they're all over you. You are stained with it. It is evident. What does he say? I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. Here comes a little bit of dawn, a little bit of hope in the midst of dark days and despair. They were wrong and God was calling them to get right. But do you notice who would make them white as wool? They couldn't do it for themselves. God said, I will do it. Here we see hope begin to spring up a little bit. There was nothing they could do to save themselves. They wouldn't be able to overcome the Assyrians when they came, nor the Babylonians. They wouldn't be able to thwart the exile that was coming. 
None of their festivals were getting to it. None of their sacrifices meant anything anymore. There was nothing they could do for themselves and they were languishing in their sins. And God comes and takes the place of deliverer and says, I will make you white as snow. I will do for you what you could never do for yourselves. Here is the resounding note of grace in the book. Let's not forget, the God of Israel is holy. He told them exactly what their sin looked like, but let's not forget the God of Israel is merciful and compassionate. And he said, I will do for you what you could never do for yourselves. What, what the prophet Isaiah was giving to Israel at this moment, 700 years before the Messiah would come, was hope. Because it would be a long time before they experienced that promise. I will make you white as snow. It would be 700 years. And they would see the Assyrians come. And they would see the Babylonians come. And the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and Rome. And they would be in exile. And there would be more rebellion and idolatry and all of these things. But what is given to them here is hope. And Israel would have to do all of us have to do from time to time. Wait now. We hate to wait. Who loves to wait? Raise your hand. No, but one liar in the back. <laughs> no, I know you, buddy. You're teasing. Nobody likes to wait. Nobody likes to wait, right? You go up to the post office and there's a line and as soon as you walk up and you see, oh, right? This is why we shop online now. We don't go to stores because there's no waiting. You just click, boom, done. But the moment you click, boom, done, you're, when's it gonna get here? And then they send you the tracking number and every day you put the tracking number in a UPS, refresh, 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 refresh. It's still in Tennessee. What are they doing? Put it on the truck. When's it gonna come? We hate to wait. We hate to wait. Israel was put at this time in a posture of waiting. A promise had been given to them and that promise once again Chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. A son is given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. His rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David will be for all of eternity. And then it says, and the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Once again, God puts himself in the place of deliverer and says, you will never be able to dig yourself out of this pit, but I will come and lift you from the pit. Unto us, a child is given. Unto us, a son is born. Israel, though it would be so far off, was given hope in this moment. Now, when we talk about hope, we're generally talking about sort of a vague, optimistic feeling. Like, gosh, I hope I see you tomorrow, right? Like maybe I'll run across you. I hope there's surf next week, a continual hope, 
But we're just talking about vague, optimistic feelings. When the Bible talks about hope, it has nothing to do with that sort of hope. Okay, when the Bible talks about hope, it is talking about expectant certainty. Certain expectancy. When the Bible talks about hope, it is talking about counting on God doing something he said he would do. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. That's biblical hope. Not, gee, I I wonder if he'll come through or maybe we'll pull it together or maybe it'll work out. No, confident hope in what God said he would do. And speaking of Jesus, Hebrews chapter six gives us a picture of this hope. We have it on the screen for you. Verses 18 and 19. It says, God has given us both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Can I get an amen? Amen. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge, is that anybody here? We who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. This is talking about Jesus Christ. In his first advent, appearing, coming, arrival, and also as it pertains to his second advent, appearing, coming, arrival. We have this hope. And the promise, the hope that was given to Israel was that he would one day himself deliver them from the effects and the weight of their sin. So that the psalmist would write to Israel and say this, Psalm 130. We have it on the screen for you. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait. And in his word do I hope. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is great power to redeem. It is he who redeem Israel from all of its iniquities. So God was giving Israel hope in dark days, in times of despair. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, a promise that was far off. Here's a question that we have to ask. How does this idea of the hope of Israel help us prepare for Christmas today? Because you see, it's a strange juxtaposition because Christ has already come for us, right? He, he, he came 2,000 years ago. Born in Bethlehem, manger, you get that. And yet in some way, their hope is our hope. Here's how it helps us. What we need to do during Advent is identify with Israel's waiting. Identify with Israel's waiting and recognize that we ourselves are also waiting. We identify with what we try to impress upon you through the text, the weight of what it must have been like to languish in the exile of our sins, waiting for the promised Messiah, and yet realizing that our position is not that far off, though it's different because Christ has come, but Christ is coming again. Look now in chapter 59 of Isaiah. Isaiah 59. 
God's going to do the same thing here, just different words. He's, he's still letting them know how bad their sin looks, but he's still letting them know that there's hope in the deliverer that is coming. As we read through Isaiah chapter 59, tell me if this could not have been written yesterday. Let's read this. Isaiah 59 verse 1. Listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Your hands are the hands of murderers and your fingers are filthy with sin. Your lips are full of lies and your mouth spews corruption. Now listen to these complaints, verse 4. No one cares about being fair and honest. The people's lawsuits are based on lies. They conceive evil deeds and then give birth to sin. They hatch deadly snakes and weave spiders' webs. Whoever falls into their web will die, and there's danger even in getting near them. Their webs can't be made into clothing, and nothing they do is productive. All their activity is filled with sin, and violence is their trademark. Their feet run to do evil, and they rush to commit murder, and they think only about sinning. Misery and destruction always follow them. They don't know where to find peace or what it means to be just and good. They've mapped out crooked roads, and no one who follows them knows a moment's peace. So there is no justice among us, and we know nothing about right living. We look, or hope is another translation says, we hope for light, but find only darkness. We hope for bright skies, but walk in in gloom. We grope like the blind along a wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. Even at the brightest noontime, we stumble as though it were dark. Among the living, we're like the dead. We growl like hungry bears. We moan like mournful doves. We hope for justice, but it never comes. We hope for rescue, but it's far away from us. For our sins are piled up before God and testify against us. Yes, we know what sinners we are. We know that we have rebelled and have denied the Lord. We have turned our backs on God. We know how unfair and oppressive we've been, carefully planning our deceitful lies. Listen to verse 14. Our courts oppose the righteous. Justice is nowhere to be found. Truth stumbles in the streets, and honesty has been outlawed. Yes, truth is gone, and anyone who renounces evil is attacked. The Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So he himself stepped in to save. To save them with his strong arm and his justice sustained him. He put out righteousness as his body, put on righteousness as his body armor and placed a helmet of salvation on his head. He clothed himself with a robe of vengeance and wrapped himself in a cloak of divine passion. He will repay his enemies for their evil deeds. His fury will fall on his foes. He will pay them back even to the ends of the earth. In the West, people will respect the name of the Lord. In the East, they will glorify him. For he will come like a raging flood tide driven by the breath of the Lord. The Redeemer will come to Jerusalem to buy back those in Israel who have turned from their sins, said the Lord. And this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit will not leave them, and neither will these words I have given you. 
They will be on your lips and on the lips of your children and your children's children forever. I, the Lord, have spoken. I mean, that was written 700 years ago of a different nation at a different time amongst a different people. But that could have been written in our nation at this time in the midst of our people. Our time is not so different than Israel's was some 2,700 years ago. There is a huge difference, though, in the display of history. For Christ has come, the first advent. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. And what was accomplished at the coming of Christ? Well, sin was defeated. And death was defeated. And the devil was defeated. And the kingdom was inaugurated. But we live in this tension of the kingdom having already come and the fullness of it still being yet to come. Though sin has been defeated, we look for the day when sin will be abolished. Though death was defeated at the resurrection of Christ, we look and long for the day when death will be abolished. Though the devil was disarmed at the cross of Jesus Christ, we look for the day when he will be thrown into the lake of fire that burns forever and ever, and there he will be. We live in the tension, the juxtaposition of the kingdom of God that has already come and is yet fully to come. We too live in dark days, in days of despair, but we don't live in days where we have to wait for our deliverance. Though our stains are just like Israel's were, we don't have to wait for him to make them white as snow because Christ died on the cross in our place already. And today is the day of salvation. Maybe as you heard the description of Israel, you said, that's me. That's how I feel. That's how sin has beaten me up. I know I'm stained in that way. Listen, I know you hate to wait. You don't have to wait. Put your faith in Jesus Christ today and understand the hope of Christmas for the first time. And yet, we wait for a day where the fullness of our salvation is made clear. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Starting at verse 18. Speaking of these difficult days and all that they entail, all that's going on in our world, I'm talking about disease and death and famine and wars. Romans 8, 18 says, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. It's talking about the second advent now. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, the fall of man. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. 
And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait, but patiently and confidently. You see, in Advent, we identify with Israel's waiting for the coming of the Messiah. But in Advent, we identify our own waiting in the second coming of the Messiah, realizing that though we too live in dark days and at times despair, there is coming a better day when Jesus comes again. For every one time scripture speaks of the first advent of Christ, there are at least eight times it speaks of the second advent of Christ. This is why Paul said, we wait confidently and with hope because if Christ came and did he come? Then Christ is coming again. And when Christ comes again, our deliverance will be made full. You see, Christmas is not just the end. Christmas is actually the beginning of what God is doing. And then finally, we not only identify Israel's waiting with it and our own, but we begin to make room for Jesus this season. We begin to make room. Luke chapter 1 is where we end. Luke chapter 1. Israel had been given that promise of deliverance through a child. 700 years before Christ came. 400 years before Christ came, the last prophetic word given to Israel was from the book of Malachi, where God said, I will send Elijah to prepare the way for the Lord. And then in some way, heaven went silent to Israel for 400 years, where they waited in exile, under oppression, for the promise. And every Jewish family, at every Passover, every year, would set at their Passover table an extra chair that nobody sat in because that chair was for Elisha because the prophet Malachi had said, before the deliverer, the savior, the Messiah comes, I will send Elisha to prepare the way. And so every Jewish heart that was waiting and anticipating the hope would put a chair there for Elijah. In Luke chapter one, we see it happen. Starting in verse five. When Herod was king of Judah, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. 
Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. This was not the child that was promised in Isaiah chapter nine for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That was speaking of Jesus. But the last word that God spoke to Israel was that there would be another one who would prepare and make room in the land for the Messiah, John the Baptist who came in the spirit and power of Elisha. So what we do at Advent is we give attention to the ministry of John the Baptist in our present day. In other words, we make room for the Lord in this season. As I said in the beginning, it would seem strange that we have to say that we need to be intentional about that. But would anybody disagree that in this season, we need to give careful attention to making room for the Lord in our lives? There are so many things that compete for it. And so what Advent is about is joining John the Baptist in his ministry of preparing the way for the Lord. And it's the same stance in light of the second Advent. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. In other words, don't hope in other things in this lifetime. Don't hope that your money can deliver you. Don't hope that your connections can deliver you. Don't hope that anything that you can acquire will mean anything in the end. But prepare your minds for action and discipline yourselves. In other words, pay attention to the slow drift that you're engaging in. Turn back from it. Don't find yourself in the place of Egypt, heading back towards slavery. But give careful attention to the Lord in the season. Advent is a time when we once again give Christ his rightful place of being on the throne in our lives. And that is absolutely necessary for Christ has come and Christ is coming again. So to prepare at Advent is to repent where we need to repent. It's to prioritize where we need to prioritize. It's to pursue where we aren't pursuing. 
And it's to rejoice in what Christ has done for us in the grace that he is bringing to us in his appearing. What we can't do in Advent is just let Christmas happen to us. We have to lay hold of it. It means something more for us. What we do at Advent is each day, here's kind of a homework assignment, each day, thank God for he has accomplished in your life through the first coming of Christ. If you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross every day, thank God that though your skins were scarlet, they've been made white as snow. Though you were burdened with guilt and shame, that heavy burden has been released. He's broken the yoke of the slavery of sin in your life. Thank God every day for what the first advent means. That sin and death no longer have the final word. But then also, second part of your homework assignment, tell God what you're looking forward to in the second advent. You see, every time we turn on the news and we see wars and rumors of wars, our hearts long for the second advent. Every time one of our children dies of some disease, our hearts long for the second advent. Every time a family is starving, every time an atrocity is committed, every time there's injustice in the land, every time the courts call what is wicked good and what is good wicked, our hearts long for the second advent. This is Christmas. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, the home of God is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away all their tears and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. Because as God had said to Israel, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a land of deep darkness, on them a light will shine. And this promise is so great that even in these dark, dark days, we're told this, Psalm 146, joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. And so, brothers and sisters, I leave you with an Advent reminder and an Advent prayer. Here's a reminder. Psalm 39, 6 and 7. We are merely moving shadows. And all of our busy rushing amounts to nothing. We heap up wealth not knowing who will spend it. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My hope is in you. And here's an Advent prayer. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for that glorious prayer and these wonderful promises. We thank you that we can look back on history and see that Christ has come. And then we could look in the future and say, and Christ is coming again. And that all of this is wrapped up in the glory of Christmas. Lord, again, don't let it be lost on us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that that prayer would be answered now, that you would cause us to abound in hope, 
that we would have joy and peace in believing in Christ in this season. Even in the midst of dark days and despair, we would rejoice for our hope is in the Lord. As we come to the communion table now, Lord, help us to remember what was accomplished in his first coming and to proclaim what will be accomplished in his second. As we kneel before you, we remember that truly the God of Israel is holy, but truly the God of Israel is merciful. Thank you for these things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.